Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. So I am continuing my series today, and um, it's Special Needs Awareness Month, Disability Awareness Month, and there's a whole host of subcategories throughout that. Too many to list here. But today I'm talking about something near and dear to my heart. It's my presentation that I like to call Voice and Choice. And it's all about person-centered planning, especially around supporting a decision-making process. I want to encourage you to, as you're going through this podcast and listening to this information, it's a little long, it's a little weighty, to think about your own situation and where this fits in. It is really difficult as a parent to take off that parent hat, or even as a family member, to take off that family member hat. Forget everything you know about this person and about your family dynamic. And remember that you are now supporting an adult. A young adult, yes, most of the time, but you are, you are in a supporter role. So you've got your supporter hat on, and that means something different. You are not making decisions in the best interest of this person. You are making decisions with them and for them that they would want to make for themselves. It is our duty to not only make those decisions, but to listen to voices, honor choices, and help prepare this person to hopefully someday be able to make more of their own choices and be able to advocate for themselves. As a guardian, as a supporter, it is our role to encourage that supporting of decision-making and to encourage someone to achieve as much independence as possible. So that's tough, absolutely. Um, I never got to this point with my daughter, Elizabeth. She died at 17 and a half. We were already talking about guardianship and I can tell you I was sweating bullets. I, I know how hard it is. As much as I really do walk the walk and talk the talk around, um, around person-centered planning, as a parent, I was terrified terrified not to just take control of absolutely everything. So during this um, conversation, I mentioned something called the dignity of risk. And I want you to absorb that and think about that a little bit. The dignity of risk is all about being allowed to make your own mistakes, even if you have a disability. Being allowed to be in a relationship that kind of goes sour choosing the wrong person, picking the wrong job, spending money on something that we really didn't need and didn't budget for. Who among us as adults has not made some mistakes? I mean, I know I have. And so you have to remember that we learn from making mistakes and there needs to be an evaluative process around, you know, the safety and well-being of stepping back and having our person step forward into their life in a whole and real way. So I hope you enjoy this presentation. 
Um, I love this topic and I am so grateful to all of you for tuning in. If you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, please direct message me. Um, I love to respond to the messages that I get, although it's hard to respond to all of them. Usually my response is to do another presentation or talk about another topic. You can also join our free Facebook group called Circle of Care. That is supported by my company, special needs companies. And um, we have, I don't know, 700 something members in there. It's a great place to get information. It's a great place to ask questions and to connect with people in your community. So thank you again. Have a great time. Enjoy. And here we go. Hi, everybody. Annette Hines here. So today I have a really important topic to discuss with you. I want to talk to you about what I call voice and choice. It's an important discussion that we all need to be having in our families around legal decision making, how to support that with a disabled loved one, or if you are a person with a disability, how to plan for that and put in a, a some backup plans, select a team to support you for now or in the future if you need it. So I started developing this talk, Voice and Choice, um, back in the early days of the pandemic because it was becoming so clear that disabled voices were not being heard and choices were not being honored. So I wanna talk a little bit about some recent developments in the realm of legal decision-making. I wanna explore the Britney Spears case just a little bit. It's, um, it's you know passed a bit at this point, but still relevant and people are still referring to it all the time. Then I want to talk about what we have learned from the pandemic. And finally, I'm going to bring that all together in the fundamentals of legal decision-making. What are your options? So talking about some developments around the country, what's going on nationally? Um, guardianship has been under fire, and rightfully so, for many years now. Supported decision-making laws have been enacted in more than a dozen states, started in Texas, and went from there. My own state of Massachusetts has a bill that has been proposed. It's on its second try to get passed, and it does not look like it's going to pass before the end of the year in this session. A handful more States like Massachusetts have also proposed and have in the works supported decision-making bills. And even before the Britney Spears case, in 2011, WINGS programs, that's Working Interdisciplinary Networks of Guardianship Stakeholders, that's an important word, uh, these programs started a revolution of guardianship reform across our country. It really focused on court community partnerships and had sweeping inclusion of stakeholders, which included disabled people, courts, disability networks, the private bar like me. 
mental health agencies, and on and on. The cool thing about WINGS programs is that it is an ongoing review. It's consensus driven, which can sometimes drive people crazy. They think that you need to have a decision maker. Um, and, and that can be true for some things. In this case, all voices need to be heard. And it's a problem solving forum, which is different than so many other groups that you may have belonged to. I know certainly for myself, that's true. For example, in Massachusetts, we have our own version of WINGS, which is the Massachusetts Guardianship Policy Institute, which began in 2015 and has convened four statewide colloquia, bringing together all of the networks of guardianship stakeholders that I mentioned previously. We will see what happens with our supported decision-making law here in Massachusetts. I'm very hopeful that it will eventually pass. However, there are so many agenda items to address that it can sometimes seem like um, a lower priority than some other things that need to get going. So let's talk about voice and choice in relationship to the Britney Spears case. Why did this case draw so much national attention? But also, why did it take so long for anyone to pay attention to what was going on with Brittany? She had been trying to make her issues known first through the court process and eventually in the pub public realm. And I think, and you may have a different idea, that this became so you know, sensational because it's Britney Spears. Ultimately, if it can happen to Britney, what does that mean for us, the average person or the average person with a disability? So let's look at her key complaints. She says she was deprived of reproductive rights and freedom. She was unable to limit the guardianship conservatorship appropriately. Remember in, in um, many states, guardianship is the term that we use in California, they use the term conservatorship, which, um, you know, will often be in other states regarding financial decision-making in California being conserved or, you know, being under conservatorship could mean personal or financial decision-making. So besides not being able to limit the guardianship or, and conservatorship appropriately, she also complained about not being able to choose her own counsel. So the court appointed counsel for her after all the parties, except for Brittany, um, had a chance to discuss some potential candidates. And then the court just went with whatever they said. Reminder, this counsel is being paid from Brittany's funds. So it is not court appointed, court paid. It's court-appointed, Brittany paid. Then she said that her appointed counsel did not listen to her and did not go forward with her agenda. She had no freedom to communicate with whoever she chooses. 
there was a, she complains, there was a lack of timely review of her case by the court and also that there was court bias. So overall, what she's talking about is a deprivation of civil liberties. That's what all of this amounts to. So that's the Britney Spears case. I want you to keep that in mind as we move forward and talk about the next section, the next topic here, which is what happened during the pandemic. So what have we learned? Um, one of the things that became so crucial during the pandemic is this idea of telling our stories. Telling our stories makes us visible, makes us real to the general public. With the pandemic, many people with disabilities were shut out from the world. They were in homes and institutions. They were not allowed visitors. There was you know, lack of connectivity, lack of communication. Um, we became even more invisible than ever. So everything coming out of the pandemic for people with disabilities and their caregivers was top down. So instead of individuals and stakeholders, remember the WINGS program, all stakeholders involved in a consensus-driven process? Not in this case, not in the pandemic. We were given dictates from higher above, whether it was our executive branch, health and human services, whether we're looking at the CDC, our state agencies, they were dictating what happened to our people, where they were going to go, how they were going to be treated, um, who they got to talk to, who got to visit with them, all of those things. So that shows that we had a lack of choice around what happened to us and what risks we were willing to take. You know, during the pandemic, if I wanted to go out to a grocery store and it was open, I could take that risk. I could evaluate the risk and I could make that decision myself. Unfortunately, someone with a disability was not given that same choice, was not allowed to go out in the public. It became an oppressive environment where rules were dictated to you with the um, rationale being that, well, if you bring COVID back to this house that you live in, there are three other people here. So we have to think about their safety too. So civil rights and civil liberties were stamped down because we were fearful and we used the excuse that, you know, you might bring it back. So I found that very frustrating, as did many people, because the caregivers were out in the world. And clearly, they were bringing it back to people with disabilities. So why was it that they had freedom of choice and people with disabilities did not? 
many, many people with disabilities died during the pandemic from COVID and COVID related um, issues. I'm not sure that all of that uh, isolating that we did actually did any good. I'm not a clinical person. I, you know, I'm not giving you a clinical opinion here, but since we were not actually truly 100% isolating people, I, I don't think that we really did much um, in that way. So people wanted to see their family. People wanted to go out to programs. People wanted to go to the mall. People wanted to go get a coffee and their voices were not being listened to. They were not allowed access to their typical life. So in addition to that, as I started mentioning around the WINGS program, in this case, the stakeholders were not being asked to the table to solve the problems that the disability community was facing. This was novel. We hadn't been through this before. So it was important to hear from all people, but that for the most part did not happen. But as caregivers, as family members, as human service workers, as advocates, you know, and, and as disabled individuals ourselves, we were there in the middle of it all. We, we stood in the breach, I like to say, um, for the disabled community. We, we were the, the block, we were the stopgap. And, you know, we were there doing all the heavy lifting at that time, but nobody was listening to us. So our experiences regarding guardianship and decision-making matter as well. And it is really important to make this a person-centered process. And that's what I want to talk to you about next. Remember voice and choice. Remember that our voices need to be heard. Our choices need to be honored. And now we want to look at that in big picture format. We want to develop a person-centered plan, not just around decision-making, although that is a huge part of it, but around all aspects of our future. So rather than looking at guardianship first, we want to consider what decisions our person that we're supporting can make and, and what areas of support do they need to make those decisions. And if you are the individual yourself, it's important to take that deep look with your team at these issues. Once you get a firm list of decisions that require support and decisions that can be made without support, then you wanna review the list of supporters that are available and also that are preferred. Remember that the supported person is at the center of any person-centered process, any person-centered team. And their voice is the most important voice. So I like to tell a story at this point about my own experience with this. My daughter, Elizabeth, who's up there, um, you know, to the, if you're looking head on at me, it's to the right. 
Uh, for me, it's to the left. My two kids are up there in the picture, Elizabeth and Caroline, when they were little, so cute. Um, and Elizabeth um, was a wheelchair user. She was intellectually disabled. She did not have good use of her arms and hands and fingers. She didn't talk, but and she was blind, but she did communicate. And she communicated preferences in the way that she knew how. She had a lot of uh, medical challenges in addition to all her physical challenges. And we needed um, almost around the clock care for her, nurses, home health aides, et cetera. And they would do the most intimate care for her, as you can imagine. So she would absolutely communicate to me her preferences for caregivers. In fact, at one point, we had someone who was just not a good fit. Elizabeth didn't like this person, didn't feel comfortable with them. And so she would cry when they came. And, you know, when they started doing care with her, she would twist and turn her face away. And at one point, I even saw her putting her hands up. Now, I'd love to tell you that I was perfect at the time. And I totally like caught on to this. I didn't. It took a while. But after I got to know her signs, I said, you know, I can't have this caregiver come back. Um, Elizabeth is choosing not to work with this person and she has the right. It's very intimate what they're doing together. And she has the right to choose her caregivers. Now, mind you, there was then, as there is now, a shortage of home care nurses and home care assistants. Home, we call them home, home health aides or PCAs. So I knew personally that sending someone back to the agency was going to be devastating for me because I have to fill those shifts. She can't, I can't say, oh, on Thursday from 8 to 3 p.m., 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., we have no nurse. So, you know, Elizabeth, you just hang out. And uh, the nurse will be in at three and you'll be all set. Clearly, that doesn't happen. I have to cover those shifts. I have to be the nurse. Many nights, I didn't have overnight support. And I had to be up all night doing clinical interventions. So that choice and honoring her choice had consequences for me. But it was important for her, she needed to know that she could choose her caregivers and that I would listen and honor her voice. I hope that that inspires you to take a look at how you do things in your own family and your own support system. So making this a person-centered process, you want to start by looking at the range of decisions that need to get made. And what applies in your person's situation or your situation? So some of those categories are healthcare decision-making, financial decision-making, advocacy, who's going to advocate and how, whether we're going to change residences, selecting a residence, selecting a job and supporting that employment effort, emergency medical, so we may have somebody who can do day-to-day decision-making on their own, but need a lot of support around crises or emergencies. 
who will help, if anybody, to assert legal rights or to defend legal claims? Who's going to hire and fire providers? Who is going to monitor all the services? And this is not the extent of the list, but it is the most common areas of decision-making that we want to consider. When people are taking a look at what decisions need support, what extent of support is needed, they'll often go to the idea of doing some clinical evaluations or some forms of evaluations. And I often get the question, is a clinical evaluation necessary for this person-centered process? So the answer is absolutely no. It is not necessary. It's certainly not required. However, I will say it can be very helpful. It will potentially help you to look at whether the individual has the mental and physical capacity necessary to express his or her interests and, and needs. And if they cannot do that, then why? What is the diagnosis? What are the conditions? What are the issues? Getting an assessment of legal decision-making capacity and personal decision-making capacity can be super helpful if it's done right. And as long as the assessment includes intellectual capacity and adaptive skills, you'll be on the right track. However, I want to urge you to be thoughtful about this. It's only one piece of information and one piece um, that you can bring into the planning process. So you need to be appropriate with how much weight you give an evaluation, the recommendations in the evaluation, and diagnoses. As we all know in this community, a diagnosis often means nothing. It's almost never a predictor of a person's course, a person's life course. So while it can be helpful sometimes to have that for clinicians and state agencies, et cetera, it just needs to be one piece of the puzzle, the planning puzzle. So if you do decide to get an evaluation, here are some tips. It should be individualized and comprehensive. It needs to identify strengths and impairments. It, it absolutely has to make recommendations. And those recommendations need to talk about what needs for support are there. And that includes decision-making, but not only decision-making. And it should determine legal capacity to, um, for decision-making and it, could, it should make recommendations as to some form of decision-making support. So guardianship is absolutely necessary. You could go for guardianship, but you might also consider these other things. If you get an evaluation without recommendations, that is not going to be as helpful to you. And I've seen those. The really good evaluations are going to make recommendations. So there are a range of options to consider when you are looking at how to support a decision-making process. 
We're going to talk about these in order. So I alluded earlier to supported decision-making agreements. We'll talk about what those are. That's the least intrusive. There are private arrangements, and those are documents uh, conferring some decision-making authority, like a durable power of attorney, a healthcare proxy, a HIPAA release, and so forth. You can do other arrangements under financial um, benefits, such as having a social security representative payee who can make some decisions for you and that's scripted out what they can do. And then other arrangements like having a representative for your Medicaid benefits, you're allowed to do that and appoint somebody under the Medicaid rules or setting up a trust and having a trustee having an ABLE account and and putting a person in charge of that or a supporter in charge of helping with that. So there are a number of pieces that you can put into place that will support all the decisions that we just talked about. But if that's not enough, then you can look at guardianship or conservatorship, depending on what it's called in your state. Guardianships can be full or what we call plenary over all decision-making. That's more rare today. Most of the time they are limited in scope and um, you are looking at what decisions need to be supported with a guardian and what decisions can be left to the individual with disabilities. In some states, you're going to have further uh, restrictions and um, further process in order to be able to step in and make a decision for somebody. I'll give you an example. In Massachusetts, a guardian cannot make certain decisions, including um, certain antipsychotic medications that they would have in a clinical treatment plan. Another court review needs to be made for that under a substitute judgment, decision-making authority. And in order to get the ability to make decisions and manage that clinical treatment plan, you have to go through a separate court process. So um, in our state, we call that a Rogers authority. Many states have similar things, maybe not over antipsychotic medications, but they're gonna be over different things. Here's where state law becomes so important. And while there is some universality around this, and I will talk about that, it is important to get advice and counsel in your own state about the, you know, the the details. Um, All right, let's dig in and talk about supported decision-making agreements. Just had a, a discussion about this with a national group that I'm part of, um, a group of attorneys. And, you know, we're all over the board about how we feel about supported decision-making agreements. They're fairly new. Uh, We don't have a lot of case law around any of it. And in my opinion, supported decision-making agreements are just codifying or, you know, made by statute. That's what codifying means something, a process that we have always done of informal supports. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You may not have the 
the title for it or the language for it, but you, you know it, you've seen it over and over again. You have a group of people on a team that support an individual and that individual relies on one person for, you know, health and wellness advice, another person for relationship and dating advice, and so on and so on. They're not all professionals. They're not all clinical. They're maybe it's the neighbor. Maybe it's, you know, the Boy Scout troop master. Maybe it's the coach in sports. Maybe it's a teacher. It's a guidance counselor, a social worker. It's everybody in this person's life, an employer, a supervisor, whoever. So it's essentially a supported decision-making agreement is an agreement that just puts in writing this informal process of support that we know. The principal, the person with a disability, signs an agreement with one or more supporters of their choosing. And the principal sets out and decides in that agreement, what areas of decision-making do they need support with? And then who is going to be in charge of helping them with that? So why then, if we've always done this, do we need supported decision-making agreements and do we need laws put in place? Well, for the most part, they are going to protect businesses um, and the parties who are supporting. They're going to they're going to tell businesses we've thought through all of these decisions and who we want to make those decisions. And under our law, our state law, there is some fraud prevention, some you know undue influence preventions. Depending on the state law, they all have little pieces of this. And it gives comfort to that banker. It gives comfort to that doctor, dentist. You know, it gives comfort to whoever is entering into a professional relationship with a disabled person that the supporter that's there who is helping our person get their banking done or make a medical decision, that there's a plan in place and that they are not abusing their relationship with this person. So it's really important to understand that this is a different concept than most of us are used to. The individual, the principal, is choosing their supporters. They are choosing the topics that they want to be supported in. And it's really important to understand that like many of our quote, typical, unquote, kids, they can ignore the advice that they're getting and do what they want. You know, we call that the dignity of risk. So as adults, we are all allowed to make mistakes, but we often don't think about that with our disabled person. We get concerned, we get um, anxious, and we don't want them to be hurt. But they have a right to make their own mistakes. They have a right to take risks. Remember back what I was talking about in the pandemic. We were not allowing our people 
to take the risk if they wanted to, that they would contract COVID and go out to a movie or a restaurant or food shopping. We took that choice away from them. So we didn't allow them the dignity of risk while each one of us was making that decision. I know people who were very extreme. They were locked in their house for months. They didn't see anybody. They had all their groceries and stuff delivered in. They were washing down the boxes. I mean, there was a lot of information coming out at us those first couple of months, remember? Well, then there were people who were completely just whatever was open, they were still living their life. And there were people who had to go to work. They couldn't be without that paycheck. So they went to work at the grocery store. And that was their choice, right? They, they couldn't be unemployed. Their choice was not to be unemployed. They went to work and they, they took the risk, whatever their perceived risk was. Our people that we support did not have that choice. Okay. So some of the objections or discussion points that come up around supported decision-making agreements are this idea of legal capacity to contract. So if somebody is not under guardianship, they have not had a declaration of incapacity, not legally. They might have some evaluations that question capacity in this realm or that realm. But we often wonder, does the principal have the authority, have the capacity to enter into this agreement with their supporters? But if you're not under guardianship, you are presumed to have legal capacity. There are all kinds of levels of legal capacity and the capacity to contract is pretty high. You need to have an understanding of the terms in that contract and what the contract covers. That doesn't mean that you need to understand all legal mumbo jumbo, for example, but you do need to understand the basics of what the contract covers, what your responsibility is, what your rights are, etc. And that can be um, more than what some of our people presumably could understand. So another question that comes up a lot is, why aren't we just using a durable power of attorney, a healthcare proxy, or a medical durable power of attorney, whatever you call it in your state, a HIPAA release, and other types of what we call incapacity documents? Why aren't we just using those? Why do we need a supported decision-making agreement? Well, it's just another tool in the toolbox. And if somebody needs support around healthcare decision-making, a healthcare proxy or what's known as a durable medical power of attorney, sorry, I got that backwards, a medical durable power of attorney, um, those spring into effect when somebody does not have capacity to make their decisions. So that document is an either or. A supported decision-making agreement is exactly what we're saying. The contract to have people help evaluate information and make a good decision. 
but the decision is the person's, the disabled person's. So again, it's just another tool in the toolbox. You can go to supporteddecisions.org if you're looking for more information. In our state, we have um, a website called honoringchoicesmass.com. In many states, they have information about supported decision-making. You can also go to the Center for Public Representation. They have a lot of information there as well. So now I wanna move on to the next topic, which we were just leading into, and that is those incapacity documents. It's quite possible that you'll have incapacity documents and a supported decision-making agreement and a person-centered plan that lays all of this out. It's, it seems maybe like a lot, but if you do the planning process properly and it's flexible and grows with your person, then you know, the hard part is the beginning, but it naturally evolves and continues on to support the person as their life changes and as they change. So a healthcare proxy, otherwise known as a medical durable power of attorney, is where the principal designates who their healthcare agent is going to be and some alternates. You need alternates. Um, and then it gives authority upon the person's inability to make in, informed consent or medical decisions. And that power springs into effect when a medical provider says this person cannot make this decision or any decisions going forward, one or the other. So under that category of any decisions, you know, it's very popular to think about somebody with dementia. They get to a tipping point where they all of a sudden are really not able to make decisions for themselves anymore. And generally speaking, that's all healthcare decisions. But many of our people are complex and they may be able to make day-to-day -day decisions about an earache or a sore throat or if they fall down and hurt themselves. But they wouldn't necessarily be able to evaluate on their own if they had cancer and they needed to make some choices about surgery, chemo, radiation, a plan where there are options to consider. So they may only need support around that one issue, not their entire life. So a doctor or medical provider is going to spring this power into effect and is going to enter it into the medical record. And if the person regains capacity to make medical decisions, then that authority goes away. So that's what a healthcare proxy or a medical durable power of attorney are, is all about. It's that springing power. It is typically not good for day-to-day decision-making unless and until you hit that tipping point. But generally speaking, you're not going to sign a healthcare proxy today and tomorrow your agent takes over and makes all your decisions. You could conceivably have the lower capacity to sign that healthcare document and not have the higher capacity needed to make all your medical decisions. But that would be unusual. So under federal law, we have something known as HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. 
And it allows you to write a blanket authorization so that one or more supporters or persons are authorized to ask for and receive medical records and also speak with medical professionals. This is not a decision-making document. It only allows a sharing of information, which is wonderful. So some good points though, and unlike a healthcare proxy, you can have many people authorized at once. You can have three people who are supporters who have the ability to share information and get medical records. The authority is good immediately. There's no springing here. And, you know, although you have no power to make medical decisions, you really ultimately do have that power as a supporter because you're able to have that conversation with the doctor, gather all the information to be evaluated and work with your person to evaluate and make that decision. Now let's talk about durable powers of attorney for financial decision-making. This is really um, good and helpful for virtually all non-healthcare decisions and actions. And in this case, a principal is going to authorize an agent to perform acts on behalf of the principal. So durable means that this authority remains even if later on the principal who signed the document becomes incapacitated. It doesn't end there. It's very useful for preventing conservatorships and sometimes guardianships. So this document has concurrent authority. Remember our healthcare proxy? You know, we had springing authority. And it was the agent makes the decision or the principal makes the decision. Here, under the durable power of attorney, if I, the principal, give you authority to act on my behalf, then guess what? You can go to the bank and withdraw money, and I can go to the bank and withdraw money. And even better yet, I, as the principal, I can overrule any decisions that you're making for me because I'm still in charge. So this, again, is ultimately a supporting document. So talking about the capacity that a principal needs to have to be able to understand and sign this POA, it is higher than the capacity for signing a healthcare proxy or a will. Um, you do need to understand that the person that you are appointing as your agent is going to have access to all of your financial decision-making and that they are, um, they are, you know, they're going to have access to all of your stuff basically. So you, they, you really need to be able to evaluate somewhat what decisions they are going to be able to make for you. So this can sometimes raise issues around usefulness for some people in the disability community, um, but it does uh, help with um, the financial industry being able to have a supporter designated in a legal document. Okay, so now we're about to talk about guardianships and conservatorships. 
there's a, a lot of discussion around, you know, why would you avoid this? Why, Annette, are you talking about all of these lesser authorities before you get to guardianship conservatorship? Well, it's a public process. Unlike all of these other arrangements that we were just discussing, which are private between the individuals and somebody that you need to share it with, like a banker, this court process for guardianship conservatorship is public, but for a few medical documentations, but everything else is public. You know, if somebody is under guardianship, you can search that. Even more important, it is a legal determination of incapacity. You can't unring that bell. You have to go back to court and prove that capacity has been regained. So it's an important step. Before you take that step, you need to evaluate whether there are less restrictive alternatives. And it can be complicated to go to court. It can be scary. It can be expensive if you hire counsel. But there are times when guardianship conservatorship cannot be avoided. And we all know this. If the person cannot manage all the aspects of their legal life or their legal decision-making, even with the alternatives available, then, you know, you need a guardianship conservatorship. But believe me, the courts, maybe this is not across the board in every state, but in many states, the courts are getting savvy, especially after Britney Spears. And they're going to ask whether you considered other lesser alternatives. In fact, supported decision-making laws in most states where they've been enacted and most states where they're being proposed, set some guidance on having these discussions around lesser alternatives before guardianship is um, pursued. So another reason that you may not be able to avoid guardianship conservatorship is if protection is needed by the court or oversight or intervention is needed by the court. In that case, you're going to want to go through a court process. And of course, if you, if you don't have supporters, and we have many people in the disability community, unfortunately, who um, do, don't have a robust list of supporters, a guardianship may be necessary in order to have court oversight of a complete stranger who's going to be making decisions for you. You wouldn't want a complete stranger to be your power of attorney um, and have access at that level, making decisions that are not, that don't have any kind of oversight. You would want that court oversight to make sure that the principal's best interests are being upheld and followed. So I'm going to mention a few things from this point on about Massachusetts guardianship as an example. Massachusetts is a uniform probate code state. We have something called model laws, uniform laws, which provide a framework for states to follow. They get to look at the model law, the uniform probate code, for example, and pick and choose what parts they would like to adopt. For the most part, when people turn to a model law, they are looking to adopt most of what's written in there, 
so that they don't have to go to all the trouble of creating from scratch a new law. These model laws are very often done with stakeholders. And just like the WINGS program, a lot of stakeholders contribute to the Uniform Probate Code around guardianships and conservatorships and protections that are needed. So many of the points that I'm talking about now may be applicable in your state as well. It's important to note that state law governs guardianships and conservatorships. As we're talking, think about that Britney Spears case. Think about the pandemic and what happened during the pandemic. And then remember that for some families, maybe your family, there's always going to be folks for whom guardianship conservatorship is the right choice. Their person may not be able to speak for themselves or their voice may be limited in such a way that it requires a legal representative. I am representative of one of those families. Had my daughter Elizabeth lived to be an adult, she passed at 17, and we were already talking about what guardianship looked like for her. While she had a voice, she was unable to effectively communicate her decisions. So let's talk about that standard for appointment that's pretty much universal. The standard for appointment um, talks about um, decision-making to meet their own physical health, safety, or self-care needs and self-advocacy needs as well. So if a person has a clinically diagnosed condition resulting in their inability to receive and evaluate information, remember we talked about that, or communicate decisions that are necessary to meet those physical health and safety needs that we discussed, then that's one, one piece of the standard of appointment. The next test is, is a guardian necessary to provide care and supervision to this person? And here we go again, less restrictive means have been explored and they are not adequate. Almost all your guardianship conservatorship state laws are going to follow some form of that. So in every court, there's going to need to be a finding of incapacity of some level in order to appoint a decision maker. That evidence of incapacity is going to differ state by state, but generally speaking, they are going to be on court forms. You're not going to be submitting medical evidence, you know, by submitting evaluations and all of these other things. That only happens if there is a contested case. If you are uncontested, meaning that you're going forward with presenting your evidence and then the court can decide just based on that evidence and there's nobody who's saying, no, 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 let's not do this, then they're going to rely on their own court forms. And in our state, in Massachusetts, that's something called a medical certificate, a clinical team report for people with intellectual disabilities. And if you need a treatment plan with antipsychotic medications, you're going to look at a clinician's affidavit as well for the treating physician. So Again, under most circumstances for uncontested hearings, you'll, you will not be presenting outside evaluations to the court. So who can be a guardian? Any qualified person. What does qualified mean? <laughs> well, that's going to vary state to state. But the court 
is going to follow a priority list. And this is going to be under your state law as well. If the person is appropriate. So most of the time they'll be looking at the incapacitated person's nomination in a durable power of attorney, a spouse of the incapacitated person or a person nominated in the spouse's will, a parent, um, or somebody that has been nominated in a parent's will or other writing. In Massachusetts, under the UPC, we have a robust uh, statute that allows us to set forth as parents in a writing who we want to um, nominate for um, the next guardian to step in. So you need to think about how do you choose from this team of supporters? If you're the parent, that's probably naturally going to be you. But you need to think about, you know, who's next up at bat. Um, and this is another area where sometimes the individual is never asked for their choice. So, for example, think about um, in cases of divorced parents. Very often they're duking it out amongst themselves, but nobody's really asking the young adult who would they like to make those decisions for them. Okay. So let's talk about protections. And these protections are almost universal, but we are really trying to bring forward more protections at a federal level and impose them on states. Um, for example, and think about the Britney Spears case as I'm telling you these, these items. The incapacitated person has rights during all proceedings. Very often that includes a right to counsel, what does that right to counsel look like in your state? They have a right to be present at the hearing. Remember that the petitioner is not responsible for getting them there, but the person does have the right to ask to be present. And if they can get there, then they have the right to have the proceedings only go forward with them there. And they have a right to have their guardianship limited. Only that authority that is needed to meet the criteria that we just discussed for health, safety, well-being, those are the only decisions that the court should be giving authority over to somebody else. There should be decisions and legal rights left to the disabled individual to the extent that they can execute on them. All right, so what does a guardian do? Many of you already know this, but I'm going to review it anyway. It is their job to make personal decisions regarding support, care, education, health, and welfare. However, they are, they are only to exercise the amount of authority necessary to accomplish those goals. This is not a free-for-all. You're not able to make every decision. Um, if something is not impacting a person's health and well-being, then you should stay out of it. They need to encourage the person. And again, this is under most state statutes. Encourage the person's participation in decisions. Encourage them to act on their own behalf. And we as guardians 
need to help them work to regain capacity, regain decision-making authority. That's their voice, listening to their voice. It is our responsibility under just about every state statute to act in the incapacitated person's best interest, not our best interest, their best interest. In most cases, a guardian's going, going to have immunity from personal liability for the incapacitated person's acts and expenses. Not what we've done as a guardian, but their acts. A lot of people ask that question. So I wanted to stop for a minute and say that I know that it can be really difficult for a parent or even another family member to take off that family member hat and put on their supporter hat. A supporter hat is different. A supporter hat listens. A supporter hat doesn't have all that family baggage. A supporter hat is responsible to the person that we're supporting. Duties of guardians include including the, the incapacitated person in all decision-making to the extent possible, hearing their voice, respecting the incapacitated person's wishes in decision-making to the extent possible, honoring their choice, notifying the court when the incapacitated person's condition has changed for better or for worse. And in most cases, there's going to be some court oversight and some reporting to the court. In Massachusetts, we have a 60-day care plan report and we have an annual care plan report. And certain authority needs to be reviewed in court every year. So that's our Rogers um, antipsychotic treatment plan authority. When you are reporting to the court, there are a variety of things that the court's going to ask you about, but you can imagine that mostly they're going to ask you about what is the mental, physical, and social condition of your person? Where do they live? What ongoing services do they have supporting them? How often have you visited them or contacted them as the guardian? Whether they should continue in the same setting they are, maybe they're institutionalized, maybe they need to go to an institution. What are your plans for future care? And what recommendations do you have for continuing the guardianship? Is it still necessary? So remember we talked about limitations of guardians. Uh, in most states, a guardian cannot commit or admit to a number of institutional settings. And there needs to be a higher level of review in the court for that. Whether that's a nursing facility, um, an intermediate care facility, uh, mental health facility, and so forth. Every state is going to have their list of things that a guardian cannot do. So how do we terminate a guardianship or remove a guardian? And again, this is going to be by state law. But in general, termination of a guardianship absolutely happens when the guardian dies or when the incapacitated person dies. And a new guardianship is started under the, you know, the death of the guardian, the current guardian. Or, and most importantly, if an incapacitated person no longer needs a guardian, then a guardianship needs to be terminated. 
You can remove a guardian under most state statutes when the guardian is not acting in the incapacitated person's best interest, or if the guardian becomes unable to perform their duties, either due to disability, mental incapacity, maybe they've moved out of the country, things like that. I know a lot of this sounds very basic and intuitive, but it really helps to understand the big picture here. So if you think that guardianship is no longer appropriate, you can go back to court to implement a new plan, whether that's limiting the guardianship further, terminating the guardianship, and you're going to need to talk to the court about what your plan is for implementing some of the other things, the lesser alternatives that we talked about today. So finally, in closing, there's so much to consider here. And we just scratched the tip of the iceberg today. So how are we supposed to know what the right choices are for our family? Look, these decisions are not easy. I really want you to trust yourselves. You are the experts. You are a team. Work together to create that great team to guide you. If you don't have enough people on your team, seek out those supports that you need, whether informal or formal. We call this our circle of care. So I hope that you have enjoyed this presentation. I hope it has really been good for you and gave you a lot to think about. If you need more information, we have a transition masterclass that you can do online learning on your own, or you can join a group coaching program that it goes for eight weeks and will bring you into a peer group of other family members and supporters. I also have a group that is just for professionals. If you need to discuss these issues at a higher level of detail, many family members are also professionals. So you can fit yourself into whatever category suits you. The course comes with an 85 plus page downloadable course book, a 40 page workbook that you can start bringing together all of these items and questions and decisions that you're making and 15 video modules, and I'm really proud of it. It's my way of continuing to reach out and support with information and services and resources for families. Not everybody needs an attorney. Not everybody can afford an attorney. And the resources can be scarce out there to help you actually bring everything together. If you decide that you're interested in any of this, we will have contact information on the slides. But essentially, you can either enroll right off the bat at our teachable.com special needs academy, or you can call our office and have a discussion about whether this is the right thing for you. I appreciate you listening today. This has been great. It's one of my favorite subjects, person-centered planning and supporting decisions. And if you have any further questions, you know how to find us. Reach out to us in any way, shape, or form that you can. Thank you. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping 
If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.